my friends. Welcome to another episode of the That Sounds Fun podcast. My name is Annie F. Downs, and I am your host, your friend with a podcast. I'm so glad to be with you today. Today's podcast is brought to you by the CSB Bible. We're going to have a fun giveaway on my blog starting December 1st. So I'll make sure to remind you as we get closer, but just a heads up that we're going to be giving away a CSB Bible, which is actually the version that the She Reads Truth Bible is in. And I love it, love it. It's a great translation of the Bible because it is kind of a blend of like the faithfulness of the original language, but with this really beautiful readability to a modern day audience. I absolutely love it. It's great for me in my personal study. I have one that sits right beside me in the mornings. And then it's also great when I'm thinking about what I'm teaching and how I'm going to teach from stages. And so I just find it to be a really great version of the Bible. If you are looking for a new Bible, if you're asking for one for Christmas, or if you're looking to give one away, I think the CSB version is one you can really trust. We're going to be giving away a note-taking Bible, a CSB note-taking Bible. I think you're going to love it. It's beautiful. So that will be starting on December 1st. You can find out more at csbible.com. So there's a really fun thing about my hometown that I don't know if I've ever told y'all. There's a handful of us who do my job and kind of jobs in our world that are all from the same hometown. And so today's guest is a friend of mine that I've known for, gosh, 25 years, a really long time since I was in middle school. So it's really fun to get to introduce him to some of you. You probably know who he is. Mark Lee is a member of the band Third Day. So if you've listened to Third Day, you have heard him in the background playing the guitar. But also he's an incredibly good author. His book is called Hurt Road. It just came out a couple of weeks ago and I absolutely love it. I got to read it ahead of time and I just think uh, the world of him and his family and his story and it's a really, really good book. It's one of those books where if you're like looking for something to give the dudes in your life who may not read very much or may not love reading, but you love giving books, this is a great option for that. Hurt Road is a really, really good book. So Mark Lee and I have known each other for forever, and it is so fun for those of you who don't know him outside of Third Day to get to introduce you to him. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend Mark Lee. Thanks for being on the show. I'm so excited to get to do this finally. Sorry that it took some time scheduling it. Oh, gosh, I know. Listen, you are like big time. Oh, so get I out get of here, Mark like, Lee. Shut up. You got to schedule time with Annie Downs. Well, certainly, certainly not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, hey, how's Marietta treating you? How's life? It's going really good. I actually just got home uh, yesterday. I've been out on tour for the last several weeks. Uh, I've been a speaker on the Positive Hits tour. So that's <gasps> been a little bit different. For I me. didn't yeah. know that. Okay, talk about that. Is it fun? It's absolutely fun. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm used to strapping on a guitar, rocking out with Third Day. Uh, but since I've had this book out, uh, I've been trying to, you know, look for different avenues, different angles to be able to promote it. And so I had this opportunity come to me to where I was able to be a speaker on uh, a music tour. So that was really different for me. Yeah. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, we hit about 28, uh, 28 markets and uh, it was Skillet was the headliner. We had other great artists like Colton Dixon, Britt Nicole, Torrin Wells, Goffey. So it was just great hanging with a bunch of friends of mine and, and then getting out there and talking about the book every night. So it was really good. Oh, my gosh. So were you, was there other speakers or was it just you? Well, it was me. And then we also had uh, Sammy, uh, who speaks, uh, does the Food for the Hungry. Oh, I love Sammy so much. Yeah, I figured you guys would probably t- oh, cross paths. I think the you. world Sammy's of him. Great. Yeah. Man, that is so fun. Okay, so how long were you speaking? How many minutes? When I speak for at churches and different things, I usually speak for 20 minutes. 
Okay. And this was for seven minutes. Oh, but, uh, so, oh my gosh. But, and I couldn't, you know, because I'm telling my story. And so it's just really hard. You, you go, what, what part of my story am I going to cut out? So what I basically did was just talked really fast. And basically did a 20-minute talk in seven minutes. Yeah, you so did. Was, yeah, uh, you did. <laughs> it was pretty hilarious. <laughs> You're like, listen, I'm not changing what I say. I'm just changing the speed at which I say it. Exactly. <laughs> okay, listen, let me tell you how much I love Torn Wells. Because we used to be out at on Girls of Grace together when he was still with his band. He was one of the guys, and you, probably, I'm sure you experienced this, but he was one of the guys that backstage, he was such a faithful voice. Do you know what I mean? Like, he just was very, sometimes when you travel, and and you've done this a hundred thousand times more than me, but when you travel with multiple bands like that, there can be, some of them you're like, oh, these guys don't even want to talk to you when you're off stage. But he always was kind of like, hey, everybody here is in the same boat, and let's talk about what God's really doing and what's going on in our lives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Torin is great, and uh, I've actually known Torin for several years as well, and we actually ended up riding on the same bus on this tour and I got to spend a whole lot of time with him. And, and he's one that, you know, and, and I'm really bad about always keeping it kind of surfacy when you're just kind of hanging out and, and, you know, being like, Hey bro, you know, everything's cool, you know, whatever. Yeah. But Torin is a guy that will drop down, you know, to the deeper level and really, you know, uh, encourage other people. And I uh, just talk about things of faith and yeah, he, he's a great guy. It was really awesome to, to be able to spend more time with him. Uh, and his band was on the bus as well. And uh, and it was actually pretty hilarious. We were out there the first day and I was kind of joking about how, you know, I've been doing this a long time and about how when we first started out, they didn't have satellite TVs on a tour bus. Right, we had really? A VCR. We had a VCR. <laughs> and so people would just record episodes of The Simpsons or Seinfeld or whatever. And we'd watch those on the bus. And I made mention that my first tour I did was in 1996. And one of the guys in Torrin's band said, I was born in 1996, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm officially old. Mark, that's awful. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, what's a VCR, dude? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. I mean, you've spent half of your, your life on a bus at this point, probably, right? Literally, probably about half of my life has been on a tour bus. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it's such a different experience than most people have. And I've, I haven't done very much touring on buses, but when I did, especially with Girls of Grace, I mean, it's almost like a totally different culture that you learn to do sleeping on a bus with 11 other people. And and I feel like the, the funniest thing about it or the most different thing about it is how long it takes you to do just the normal things that you take for granted. You know, you get up in the morning and you you know, you shower, you get ready, you grab a cup of coffee. And at home, that might take you 30 minutes. When you're out on the road, it could take two hours because you've got to get your suitcase off the bus. You've got to walk around aimlessly for a while and figure out where your dressing room is. And then you may have to (laughs) wait your turn before you can uh, get in there to the shower. And then you've got to, oh, wait, where's catering? I got to figure out where this coffee is. Right. Right. People, a lot of times they're like, you know, what do you guys do when you're on the road? And I feel like it's just a lot of walking around looking for stuff. Right. (laughs) Because every single venue is totally different than the last one. It is. And it's funny. And also like, oh, you might have heard my dog barking in the background. That was funny. That's Ozzy. On the one hand, I feel like all of the venues are exactly the same. And, you know, and we'll travel to St. Louis and people go, oh, did you go to the Arch? We'll go to Seattle and people say, hey, did you go to the Rock and Roll Museum? And I'll say, no, everything looked kind of the same. But you're totally right. Everything is is different 
backstage to the point that you've got to look around and figure out where everything is. It's a, uh, it's pretty hilarious. Do you know, Mark, that's one of the reasons I don't, my assistant Eliza and I do a thing in every city we go to called tour de taste buds, where we go to a local restaurant and we score it. And the reason we started doing that is we realized that we were literally in every city, we were seeing the inside of a plane, the inside of a rental car, the inside of a church and the inside of a hotel. And that was it. That, that's pretty much the truth. Now that's a great idea. Right? Tour the taste bud. Yes. Like, okay, that's that's the the second thing from Annie Downs that I'm going to be ripping off today. The tour the taste bud. Well, listen, bud. let really me tell like you how that. you score it. It's easy. There's only three categories. First is atmosphere, and it's literally like how does the place feel? How's the service? And you're only going one to five. So the highest they can get is a five. So it's atmosphere and then taste, pure, how's the food? Taste is important, absolutely. And then the third one is how do you feel? Like it's just a totally subjective, (laughs) how do you feel? Just kind of atmosphere, yeah, how do you feel? Right, how do you feel? Did you you eat too much? Did you not eat enough? Was someone loud next to you and it made you crazy? I mean, how do you feel? So that's what we do. But the theory behind the idea, and we put it on Instagram, people think it's funny, but the reason we do it is we're like, we are wasting all these cities. Now we're not on a tour bus, right? So we have a car, we can we can get out, but we were like, we're wasting this opportunity to see cities that, that are really cool. And so we need to start eating local in places. That is a gr- that great idea. We actually used to joke about, and we never followed through and did it, that it would be so easy to just have a whole show, like have a TV show. And it's like during the day, you can like go to a restaurant, you can whatever. It could be like a travel show. It could be, you could take any kind of angle with it. And then at night, oh, look, we got to get to the show. You know, you basically have like, you know, Scooby-Doo, like that whole the whole premise of that show is like you walk around and you got to save the day during the show or during the day. And then you got to get to whatever it is. You know, you got to get to Uncle Owen's farm for the, you know, the pig festival yeah. that night. You know, it's the same kind of thing. A long time ago when Hillary from Lady A was still single, there were a couple weekends where she would just randomly bring random friends of ours out on the road with her for runs. And one of the goals was always figure out something in this city that is special to this city. So, like, I was with her for a run in Rhode Island, and we found a 16-layer cake. And then we just had a runner drive us to the bakery to try this cake because it was the one thing this one city in Rhode Island was known for, right? And so, oh, that is awesome. So you're right. There is a TV show there. We should pitch it to someone who. I, I think there's something there. I, I definitely think there's something. You know who there. would be hilarious doing that show? It's Family Force Five because those guys oh, are yes. wackadoodle, and we can say because yeah, we. Those I mean, guys you know, they're Marietta guys like us. They're from the same hometown as us, so I don't mind saying they're just hilarious to me. They really are, and it's funny. So you mentioned they're from Marietta. I literally about probably five years ago. I was walking on the Marietta Square, which I know I've seen you on the Marietta Square before, just walking around. So I was walking around one day on the Marietta Square, and I saw the Family Force Five guys, and I was like, what are y'all doing? And they're like, we're about to film a music video. And I'm like, oh, really? Right here in Marietta? They're like, yeah. And I was like, what? So what's the music video? We're about to fight a dragon. (gasps) Oh, okay. Hey, you guys have fun with that. That's awesome. On brand. On brand. Fighting a dragon. Okay, so do you know that I knew them in elementary school? You are kidding. Because we're all the same age. Yeah, Jacob and my sister were like boyfriend, girlfriend, kindergarten, boyfriend, girlfriend, like friends in kindergarten. Yeah, we all went to Blackwell Elementary School. So there's this video of me in, I'm in third grade and Solomon is in fourth grade and the twins are in first grade. And we're doing the talent show at Blackwell Elementary. 
and I'm singing like some doo-wop song from the 60s. It was like a review where we did music from the 60s, 70s, and then it was the 80s, so modern day. And they're <laughs> the act right after me. It's so funny. Now, were they the brothers yet? Yeah, at this uh, point? no, was- no, we were too little, but then they became the brothers, middle school and high school. When they were little kids, I mean, I think maybe the oldest was maybe in high school, maybe, but yeah. they were like a, a boy band, you know, when yes. they first started out. And, you know, third day, we had been kicking it for a little while. We weren't quite signed to a record company yet, but we'd been out, you know, traveling and doing our thing. And then we ended up opening up for the brothers, you know, it was these little kids. And Wait, y'all opened for them? We opened up for them. Yeah, this would have been at about Mark. 95. And that they, they I got to say, they kind of blew us off the stage. They were really good. <laughs> they were and they, really you know, they good. They still are, but they've always been super talented, even when they were little kids. So. Yeah. Yeah, I bet that was when we were in middle school and high school, because that's when they were the brothers when I was in youth group at First Methodist. And when you guys, when Third Day was playing our summer camps. Oh, well, oh yeah. Yeah, so yeah. We, we've got a long history going back. I totally forgot. Yeah, we used to play at the at the summer camps there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, literally, I've known, you didn't know me because I was a middle schooler, but literally probably since the mid-90s, I knew you and Third Day, and, and we all kind of grew up in the same world. So I think it's super fun now to get to be friends with you and be friends with the, you know, the Family Force Five guys when I run into them at coffee shops or whatever and be like, man, we all came from the same little nest. And that is insane to me. I know. It's so hilarious. Yeah. Who would have thunk it that, you know, us being from just this little, I mean, it's not a little town, but this one town in Georgia that, you know, have all of us that, you know, kind of went our different paths, but you know, we all kind of have that the same roots there. It's yeah, isn't awesome. that funny? So what's the difference to you being on a tour? What's the emotional or spiritual difference for you speaking on a tour versus playing with Third Day? You know, I, I, there were a couple of things. I think one, uh, and this is just a very simple, just practical kind of thing, but there was just, with Third Day, there's this big pressure. You know, it's a, obviously it's a lot of fun getting up there with a the band and rocking out and, and, you know, doing that whole thing. But uh, there's this technical side of it. Uh, where, you know, I'm, I'm going out there like, okay, what if, what, what if something goes wrong tonight? You know, if right. you know, I've got all this gear behind me, what if something, what if tonight's the night that something decides not to work? So I would, there was always this little bit of worry in the back of my mind. Whereas as a speaker, my sound check is literally just walking over to the spot where they have about three microphones lined up and just making sure I pick up the correct microphone. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So Although, technically, say, it's easier. That's, that's all I got to do, except for there was one night that I went and picked up the wrong microphone. No. But I think there is a thing when you're out with a band, you know, you kind of have this, this band of brothers, for lack of a better word. You, yeah. You're kind of doing life together on the road. And the road really can be, you know, as fun as it is, like we were talking earlier, it can be a lot of fun, but it also, you know, can be a lonely kind of environment to be in. And so when, you know, you're touring with a band, you have this built-in kind of hang time and a built-in uh, like checks and balances just to make sure that, you know, everybody's okay, you know, from a spiritual standpoint and we're, you know, having those deeper conversations. And uh, when I'm out by myself as a speaker, that sort of camaraderie goes away to a, a large degree. So, a lot of it was was the responsibility for that was placed on me to make sure, you know, if I am not deliberate about seeking some people out, having some some real, you know, human interaction, you know, having some conversation uh, that's not just surfacy, then, you know, it only takes a couple of days where you kind of start going to the dark side, you know, where you just, 
you know, having these doubts creep in and you can, yeah. you know, almost like flirt with getting a little bit depressed, you know, when yes. you're out on the road like that. But, uh, one great thing about this tour that I just did was, uh, I, I got to know, you know, we mentioned about Torin and his band and, uh, just a lot of great musicians, you know, Britt Nicole and her band is awesome. Oh yeah. She was on girls of grace with us too. I love her. Yeah. Britt is, she is amazing. And just seeing her like backstage, just with people that she knew other people on the tour or even people that she had just met, you know, seeing her praying with people backstage. I mean, that just, you know, I'll, I'll take that away as just a memory of like, wow. I mean, she just really lives this out, you know, this faith and just really tries to find ways to encourage people. So I think that was the real key for me was just making sure that uh, I found other people to, uh, you know, just kind of interact with and do life together as we were on the road. And because if you don't, I mean, you can, you know, kind of get to where you're sort of drifting. And and I just don't think that's a good place to live out of. Oh, man, that's why I always travel with a person. Because if I did this by myself all the time, I would believe everything I heard in my head. Right. <laughs> I, I could. Yeah, I could totally see that. And, you know, we, we've had that question, you know, through the years, people say, you know, how do you guys stay humble? And my answer has always been because I've got, you know, these other guys in the band that if it starts getting in my head, they're going to call me out on it really quick. You know, and and Mac, you know, years ago, he's told the story and I, I heard him tell it even recently about how we were about to do a show in Nashville. And there were there were like 13000 people. There was a really big crowd. And we're literally about to walk on stage. And then his wife, Amy, comes up with, it might have been Cammy was a baby at the time, his uh, third oldest. And she comes up, she's like, you got to change this diaper. And so I just feel like we've always had, you know, yep. between the other guys in the band and then our wives and then now having kids as well, just got those built-in checks and balances that, uh, you know, having other people in your life that will keep you humble, I think is really, really key and really important. John Ankuff always says, don't believe the top 10% or the bottom 10%. And that are, those are the two voices that are loudest to me when I walk off stage. The top 10% voices and the bottom true. 10%, right? And so if I have someone with me who lives regular life with me, who knows me all the time, I don't listen to the top 10% or the bottom 10%. And honestly, you know who waits in line to talk to you? The top 10% and the bottom 10%. The middle That's 80, a great point. they've yeah. enjoyed it and they bought your book or bought your record. And then they were like, oh, I'll wait in line. Nah, the line's long. I'm going to go. I'll just tweet her and tell her I had a good time, right? Like that's the middle 80 Right. And but that goes for so many things. It goes for, you know, if you get emails after a show, yes. you know, the, the people that are going to take the time to send an email are either, like you said, in that top 10% that are just, they're the psycho fans, which they're great. It's great to have those people. Or they're the people that are just, they're mad about something. And they may not even be mad at you. They may be mad at their dad or something, but they decided they're going to use you as the the outlet for that. Yeah. And I had one event where I was by myself and it was actually with Brit. It was me and Brit. And in a weird turn of events, you know how this stuff happens. A weird thing happened. There were 4,000 people in the audience. They got sniffed that Brit was coming right after me. And so they didn't listen to me. Everybody was like yelling her name while I was teaching, Mark. I mean, like, oh, goodness. It, it was really bad. And then I had another event by myself the next night. And literally for 24 hours, I thought, I can't do this anymore. This is my last one. I can't get up on stage and give my heart like that and people not care. And like the producer had to come out on stage and get people to be quiet in the middle of my talk. 
Oh, goodness. I mean, brutal. It was brutal. And that was the last time I ever traveled by myself. That was 2013. I was like, I can't do it. If I'd have had someone with me that we could have processed that and gotten through to the other side, I would have been a lot better off. And so I was like, I can't travel by myself anymore. Because it wasn't anything Brit did. She's amazing. She didn't even know what happened. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's just the, the way the fans were at this, at yeah, this show. Yeah, at this particular that, that's thing. A, just a great thought, just to have somebody that you know that's there with you. And also, you know, Having somebody that you know, you you can sort of filter through their opinions and their worldview. You know where they're coming from. Whereas if it's just a you know stranger that you're meeting at an autograph signing after the show or whatever it might be, you don't know where they're coming from. You know, with their their praise or criticism. Yeah, so it's good to right. have somebody else that you know that can give you that honest feedback. That yeah. And remind us both that, like, Eliza also reminds me often, like, as soon as the work is done and we're going to see a movie or we're going to dinner, she's like, okay, now, and we're still normal people. Like, you're not a big deal. I'm not a big deal. You're not the worst. You're not the best. Now we did our job. We did what God asked us to do. And now we go see a movie and then we fly home. You know, like, it just becomes part of a normal system of life versus, like, I was on a stage and now I'm off a stage. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Because as you said earlier, you know, just tr- just the whole idea of traveling, being on the road getting up on stage. It's just, it's a very weird existence and it's good to have somebody else in your life that just keeps things grounded. You know, it's funny, even when my kids were little, like they, they just thought that everybody else's dad was in a band. They yeah. didn't know that what I did was this different, you know, weird kind of thing. So totally. I, I think just having that, that normal life, you know, just to balance everything out is very, very key to the whole thing. Oh, for sure. Tell me how old your girls are now. Okay, so Abby is 14, and she is in eighth grade, and then Kitty is uh, nine, and she's in third grade. I actually yesterday went on a field trip with Kitty's class. We went to the the science museum. So I had just, I got up at about four o'clock in the morning to fly home. I'd been in Dallas, flew home to Atlanta, drove straight to the science center to go on the uh, field trip with, with Kitty's class. And Kitty came up and gave me a hug. She's really excited to see me. And then she went right back to hanging out with her friends. And oh, my God. I was like, okay, okay, that's cool. That's all right. You're like, I get it. When you're 25, we're going to talk about this again. <laughs> and the sacrifice. You're going to go, Dad, that was a beautiful sacrifice you made for me. Absolutely. Well, I, let me tell you, though, I owed her one because last year I had signed up. An email went out. They were doing it, going to, like, the History Center or something. And I knew I was going to be in town that day. So I was like, all right, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to be the hero dad. And agreed to be the chaperone on the trip and then totally forgot about it. No. And I I was home that day and I went and picked up Kitty from school and she just got in the car. She sat down and she said, field trip. No. (laughs) And those those two words, like it all came crashing down. Oh, no, I totally forgot. So this was like a big time, like, baby, I owe you. I owe you. I got to come to your, come to your field trip this time. So, but it's all good. She, she's great. She's really sweet. She, you know, as the second child, I'm the second child myself. You just, you, you kind of take things in stride. You kind of take what you can get. Sometimes it involves some hand-me-downs. Sometimes sure. it involves a little bit of a second best, but that's okay. <laughs> that's, that's all right. Um, do you feel like, because one of the interesting things I've seen moving from Marietta to Nashville is so many families have one or both parents that are on the road that that really is kind of culturally a norm here. And you you guys lived here too for a while in Nashville. So you remember that there's just this cultural norm of like, if I don't see a friend for four weeks because he's on a tour, that's that's totally normal. We'll pick up right where we left off. Do you feel like your girls have, I mean, because of the other third day guys, do they kind of consider it pretty normal now that y'all's life looks so different than most of their friends? 
I think they do. And when we lived in Nashville, yeah, I totally agree. I, I loved that for Stephanie, my wife. Like when I was gone, uh, I knew that she had some other friends who were uh, wives of people that did music. And so, it, like you said, it was a normal kind of thing. So she had this community of people that she could plug into when we were away from home. Uh, I think with the kids, uh, I think because they've just always grown up around it, that they've known that, you know, daddy's going to go away for a few days, but he's going to come back. And so they've been able to, uh, I think, stay pretty grounded with all of that, really. And and Stephanie is really good. When I'm gone, you know, they'll they'll do fun stuff and, you know, they have all these activities they get involved in almost to the point when I come home that they're kind of like, Daddy, don't you have somewhere else you got to go? <laughs> <laughs> don't you got to be at work? We're busy. <laughs> That's right. So, and, and it's been really interesting this year. You know, I just did this tour. But other than that, uh, we haven't done a lot of touring with the band this year. So I've spent a lot of time at home. And there's been more than once that the kids are like, Daddy. You don't have a show or something, you know. You kind of you know, <laughs> a little bit of a break here. Yeah, you're like kids. I've been touring for 25 years or whatever. That's right. <laughs> this this is the break right here. Yeah, I've been touring 25 years. We're gonna have a little bit of time off. Now. That's right. So, and don't I remember? So, um, I, I don't know if you remember this, but a million moons ago, I was nannying for the Powells for Mac. Oh yeah, yeah. And so when y'all's y'all's girls were little and. I, if I remember correctly, did, don't y'all have a kind of a rule about we're gone this many days and that's the max we're gone? We do. Yeah. So back in, this was about 96, um, when this kid and Torn Wells' band was born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it makes you feel better, I was totally driving a car. So don't worry. Oh, okay. I, okay. That makes yeah, me I feel much, a little yeah. bit better. Not much, yeah, there you but go. a little bit better. <laughs> but yeah, about 96, we, we toured and we just didn't really know anything about it. We just kind of thought, you know, that, you just go on tour and you just kind of go. And so we did a couple of tours where we would uh, do like 63 shows in about 70 to 75 days. And so we'd have just a couple of days at home over the course of like three months. And uh, this is around the time that different ones, different guys in the band were starting to get married. And, you know, our fiancés, wives at that time were saying, okay, this is not going to cut it. We're going to have to figure something else out. And so at that time, we said, we realized, you know what, we can set this. We can be deliberate about our scheduling and just make sure that, yes, we're going to be away from home. We're going to do the touring that we need to do, but we're also going to make sure that we're home, if not every week, then every couple of weeks. But really, since we did that, I mean, I could just about count on the one hand, like the amount of times over the last, say, 20 years that I've been gone for more than a week at the time. Usually it'll be that we're gone for like four or five days and then we're home for two or three days. So, uh, you know, a lot of times people will, will say, you know, man, you know, you guys are always away from home and, you know, they almost want to feel bad for us. And we're like, actually, our schedule is is better than I think you realize that I, I know for me, like if you add up just all of the time that I'm home with my kids it's probably a lot more than other friends of mine that have traditional jobs, you know, that yeah. are maybe gone from nine to five, you know, I've, you know, I'll be gone for a season, but then when we're done with the tour, I'm just kind of home. So I, I'm, you know, get to, you know, spend a lot of good time with the kids and I, I think it averages itself out pretty well. I do too. That's what I'm seeing in families here in Nashville. Cause my, my friends here are probably, you know, 10 ish years behind y'all. So they have kids that are still in elementary school and babies that are like my road friends. And so I'm watching as they are balancing 
how long to be gone and what it looks like when you're home. And, and man, when the moms and dads who are on the road are home, they are all in with their kids. And it's beautiful to see. It, yeah, it really is. And that's something that, that we, we decided to do a long time ago. And, and I think it, it's, it's great. I mean, and, and I think that, like I said, it's, it's what our kids kind of know and what they've always known that we're, we're going to be gone for a little while, but then we're going to be back home. But I think it's worked out really well. And it doesn't have to be that. I mean, we, I just toured with Skillet and they have it set up different. They tour a whole lot, but they take their kids out with them. And the kids oh, do, right. You know, okay. They have a tutor and they do that, you know, the online school kind of thing. And do they? So how many buses does Skillet run then? I think they just have the one or maybe they have two. I, I should totally God know this. God bless them. But wow, yeah, wow, so wow. they just, the you know, the kids are out and, uh, and they, they're great kids. I mean, they seem to really be really well grounded. And so it, it's, I don't think there's any one right or wrong way to do it, but I think that it's something that, that if, you know, you're going to travel, if you're going to have a family, you really need to make sure that you have those things in balance mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah. I think that's interesting for people outside of the culture of road life. So whether they're outside of Nashville or, you know, I think about some friends in LA who are on the road too. people who are outside the culture of road life, maybe don't realize all the boundaries you have to learn to draw to have family and to do it well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's the key is is just having the boundaries, setting those up and and honoring those. You know, even if if sometimes it's not the easiest thing. I know we a couple of years ago we were going to be doing some shows in Australia, which does involve us being gone longer than a week. I think we were gone for maybe 10 days for that. And then I realized that we had a daddy-daughter dance at my kids' school. And it was the one year, you know, my kids are like five years apart. So this was the one year that they were both in elementary school together. So this would have been the one year that I could take both of the kids to the daddy-daughter dance. And so I had to call and we, re, you know, shuffled some things around, changed our schedule to go to Australia. But I felt like this was one of those times that, you know, you're never going to get that chance again to take your kids to this event. So I just felt like, all right, we've got to do this. So you know, you just sometimes it involves some sacrifices and, you know, changing things around. But I think, you know, it's the boundaries and then also just having it be that that level of a priority. Right. It's just really important. Right. OK, so what made you I mean, y'all have been doing music for so long. What made you decide to write a book or have I mean, what I know about you as my friend is you love books and you love to read. Is that what made you decide to write a book? It is. So I, my mom was a school librarian. And so I, you know, from the time I was a little kid. My mom was taking books home from the library and, you know, I, I just, you know, she would take home like the Narnia books and I would read one and I'd be like, all right, I want to read the next one. And then I'd get into, you know, Lord of the Rings and Madeline Langle and just a lot of uh. these great authors as a child. So I always, I think in the back of my mind, I just assumed that one of these days I was going to sit down and write a book. I started doing the blogging thing a few years back and I just really loved that. And, you know, of course, you know, you start writing and putting your stuff out there online and people start saying, well, when are you going to put a book out? And so for about 10 years, it was like, okay, I'm going to write a book. I know I'm going to do this, but I'm just not sure when. And then about three years ago, we got a, a little gap in our touring schedule. And it was around August, right about the time my kids were going back to school. So I knew that I would have this block of time, you know, every day while the kids are at school that I could work on a book. So I was like, all right, I'm doing this. And, but at the time, you know, I mentioned about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and Madeline Lingle. I assumed that I was going to write a fiction book, you know, yeah, kind of a fantasy. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask book. you. Do you have, I mean, did you do any of that or will you? Well, I, I, I sort of just messed around with it a little bit. 
that that was you know kind of the plan. I hadn't really got involved in it too much, but I know that when I uh, my kids started school, and it, it might have literally been like the first day of school, and I came home and I told Stephanie, my wife, I said, "All right, I'm gonna sit down. I'm gonna write the book. I'm gonna start. It's finally time, and I'm gonna write this fantasy fiction book." And she said, and I'll never forget her exact words were, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I love your wife so much, and that sounds exactly like her. Oh, oh yeah, it, it, <laughs> it is. It, that's exactly what she said. But uh, she was like, look, you can write a fiction book, and I know it would be great, but your story is something that you can share with people, and I really feel like it'll encourage other people. You know, If they see what, what your journey has looked like, uh, they can be encouraged and, and apply that to their own life. And I was like, you know what? I, I think you're right. I think it really is time for me to do that. And it took some work for me because I just didn't really know a whole lot about just the whole memoir genre. So it took some trial and error and, you know, some studying of just that craft side of it to figure out, you know, what that looks like. So I sat down and I just wrote this really, you know, this bad uh, draft. And actually, if you want to know what I did, so I went... I know you know Jeff Goins. I had talked oh, yeah, to yeah. Jeff. We had had this great phone call, and he was encouraging me with my writing and things. And, and we were talking about how YA is like, that's the, the genre that everything's going towards. And so I was like, yeah, I want to make sure that I write a book that's like kind of in that vein, even if it is a memoir, that the, the sentences are shorter, the chapters are shorter, and it, it really draws the reader in. So, so what I did is I went to the library, and I looked up, and I figured out how long the first Harry Potter book was. And it was something like... 76,233 words. I don't know if it was exactly that. I was about that. to Something say, like good that. memory, Mark Lee. <laughs> and so I don't, I don't think that's exactly right, but it's close. And so I was like, all right, so I'm just going to go write 76,233 words of this memoir something, and then I'm going to know that I'm done with the first draft, and then I can go and edit it. And that was honestly probably the most freeing thing that I did. And it's really similar, you know, we're in November now. I don't know when this podcast will air. We're in that NaNoWriMo kind of time where people- Yeah, go, it's coming out like, Thursday. We're recording on Tuesday and it's oh, coming out oh, Thursday. Oh, you're oh, cool. this Look week, you. man. You're on top of yes. it. That's awesome. So, you know, it's the same kind of concept where people write 50,000 words of something and then you go back and edit it because that's where the real work happens is in the editing. And it takes going through this process to realize, I know for me, like, you know, I wrote the 76,000 words and I would say- Two thirds of those are not even in the book now because I went back and edited it, and then I went through it again with. Uh, with Isn't an that agent brutal? Throwing all that out. It, it is. It is. It really is. I'm about to do it. That's literally what I'm doing today. Is I bet I toss twenty thousand of my sixty, and it's going to oh, break wow. my heart. Yeah. It is, and it's hard too when you're telling you know, and I know you write these kinds of books as well. When you're telling personal stories from your heart. You know, there's the, the old phrase they, and writers say all the time, you know, you got to kill your darlings. Well, when, you know, in my case, when killing my darlings means cutting out my maternal grandfather from the book, you know, that's really hard. You know, somebody that was really important in my life and, you know, some, some life lessons that I picked up from him and it did make the book better. I just had to like kind of cut out some of just these stories that are great, but just don't really help push the the book along my agent she had this great great phrase that she said you know you've mark you've got to figure out what goes in your book and what goes in your memory scrapbook you know that you've written some things that are great but they don't really work for the book you know you can save those and do something with it later but so i had to go through and cut a lot of things out that really meant a lot to me personally but didn't really help uh, tell the story but you well. probably had to write all that to get to the story 
Oh, I t- oh, totally did. Yeah. Because you don't really even know. It's funny for me, like you don't even know how to write a book until you've written one. And even if it is that terrible first draft, you've gone through and there's just lessons that you learn through that process that you're able to p- apply in the editing process. Yeah, that's, I mean, I tell people a lot, like, like today, the words I'm going to cut, I don't regret writing them. I wish that my time had been used differently, right? Like I, I wish that the first time I wrote a book was the only time I wrote a book, but you know, we have to, I have to process through those 20,000 to get to the book that I'm supposed to write. Absolutely. And, And it's so hard. It's something about just the creative process and writing books in particular that we think it's supposed to be really easy. You know, in other pursuits, nobody expects you to just strap on a pair of tennis shoes and go run the Boston Marathon. They know that there's going to be a lot of work. There's going to be a lot of trial and error. There's going to be blood, sweat, and tears. There's going to be lessons learned. You know, there's going to be all kinds of things that are going to happen between when you decide you're going to start running and when you compete in a race. Uh, But for some reason with writing, people just expect that they're just going to sit down, they're going to open up their laptop and they're going to write war and peace or something. And it just, you know, that just doesn't happen. You know, there's, there's a, just this, this long involved process and it does involve a lot of, of trial and error where you write and you may go down this whole line of thinking that you end up realizing you, you can't use it for the book, but you're totally right. By going through that process, you kind of figure out what you need to do and you just learn and, and can apply the lessons you've learned into what actually makes it into the book. And it informs the story that you end up telling. So tell me why you titled your book Hurt Road. <laughs> okay. So um, it's funny. As I travel around the country and, you know, I go to somewhere like Nebraska and I say, I've got a book called Hurt Road. People will say, I get it. It's the pain of the journey. It's the struggle of this road that we're all on together. If I'm in uh, Marietta, Georgia, I can say I've got a book called Hurt Road. And people say, I get it. If you're driving down the east-west connector, you can cut over to Hurt Road yes. and you can cut off a little bit of time. <laughs> yes. So, Because Hurt Road, it's a literal place. Yes. And it's where something very important happened to me when I was a teenager. Uh, I was 14 years old. And this isn't going to give anything away because this is like the first scene of the book. But uh, I was 14 years old and my church was having a donut fundraiser. And so I had agreed to help my church sell uh, these donuts and my youth pastors, for some reason, thought it would be a good idea to send me to Hurt Road to sell donuts. Why they couldn't have sent me to Happy Road or Healthy Road, <laughs> I have no idea. They had me on Hurt Road. And uh, so this car pulls up to the intersection, and I go out to the car and I say, hey, man, do you want to buy some donuts? And the guy says, sure. And I was like, man, I'm a good donut salesman. <laughs> um, you know, not realizing Krispy Kreme donuts pretty much sell themselves. And uh, so... I had forgotten, you know, as I'm out there, you know, making my transaction, forgotten that the light had changed in the intersection. So I turned, I took a step out onto the road, and then I, the, the guy in the car said, hey, buddy, look out. And I look up, and I see these headlights coming at me. I ended up getting hit by a truck. And, um, you know, as I, after I got hit by the truck, honestly, my first thought after I got hit by this truck was, I'm still alive. Aren't you supposed to die if you get hit by a truck? But really? That's what you thought when you're, like, laying on the road? It really was. Yeah, and it's funny. You know, people will say... You know, and it's funny because as I've put this book out and as I've been kind of living it out and been on the road and and meeting and talking to people, a lot of people have been in accidents. I mean, I meet somebody every night without fail, somebody who's been in some kind of, you know, traumatic accident, whether it's a car or motorcycle or if they actually got hit by a vehicle like I did. And a lot of people will say, you know, I I don't remember anything that happened. But that was like the opposite for me. I remember everything that happened, all the details. Uh, But 
as I'm laying there in the middle of the road, um, I just, I just knew that, you know, I was never going to be the same again. I knew that something, you know, this something horrible had happened to me. I realized later, you know, I'd broken a couple of bones in my leg. I was in and out of school, but God used that moment, uh, where he took all of the little dreams and hopes and plans that I had for myself. And he replaced those with his bigger dreams, his bigger hopes and plans that he had for me up to that point in my life. I, I did music, you know, I played violin when I was a little kid and I was in the marching band, but guitar wasn't even on my radar at all. And it was after my injuries when I was out of school and I'm sitting around watching MTV. This was back when they actually played videos on yeah, MTV. Yeah, when you were watching music. Yeah, that's right. And my dad saw me watching all these music videos and he was like, son, you could do that. So he bought me a guitar when I turned 15 for my birthday. And that was when I started playing guitar. So if I hadn't got hit by the truck, I wouldn't have started playing guitar. I wouldn't have, I mean, I probably would, would have met up with Mac because we were in the marching band together. We would have been buddies either way, but um, wouldn't have started third day. Wouldn't, you know, I literally would not be here as I am as the guitarist for third day if I hadn't got hit by the truck. And so my hope is that somebody else reading the book can uh, just take away that, you know, a lot of times life throws these things at you that you just completely don't expect. You know, sometimes they're good things that are unexpected, but a lot of times there are these, these bad things, these detours in life. And, you know, I don't know the whole theology of it. I don't necessarily believe that God makes bad things happen in our lives, but I do believe that he can use these, these bad events of our lives, these painful things that happen to us. He can use those for his good. And so that, that was the biggest lesson that I've learned through going through all of this. And then I think the next thing is just for me, you know, as a 14 year old, when this happened to me, I was always just projecting out into the future. I was always like making plans for, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, which is, it's great to do that. But I was doing it to the point that I was failing to realize the great life that God has for me in the day to day. And so oh, wow. there's this whole idea of, which is asking a lot of a 14 year old to be fair. Mark. It, oh, it is. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you really held yourself to high standards back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. But you know, when you're 14, you know, it's it, obviously you're, you're making plans for your life and it's an important time to do that. Uh, but I, I feel like while, yes, it's great to make plans. You just don't need to live your life in the future to the point that you're, not embracing this amazing day-to-day faith that God has for us. And so there's this idea of moment-by-moment obedience that I've, I've really come to embrace really more and more every day. You know, I feel like a lot of times I'm guilty of this, and, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are as well. You know, you get up in the morning with the best of intentions. You'll read your Bible a little bit, maybe read a devotion. You'll pray. Then you'll close your Bible and then it's like, all right, God, you know, you got more important things to worry about. You know, there's natural disasters, there's famine in the world. I'm going to let you take care of that, but I'm going to take care of my life. I'm going to take care of my little corner. But I really feel like God's wired us to be in this relationship with him all of the time, this moment by moment kind of obedience. And that's the biggest lesson that I've learned. You know, here I am 44 years old. So I'm hoping that somebody that's in their thirties or twenties or even in their teens, that they can read this book, they can read my story, and hopefully learn some of these lessons that have taken me decades to learn. Hopefully they can read the book and pick up on it right away and apply it to their life. Man, isn't that the joy of doing what we do in this part of this writing and the speaking of going like, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. I'm just telling you like eight shortcuts that I promise will make it easier. <laughs> totally. Yeah. When, when I very first started playing guitar, I had this great teacher here outside Atlanta, and one of the very first things he said to me, he's like, look, I'm going to be 
like telling you a lot of things to do that you're going to, you know, roll your eyes and you're not going to want to do these. But what I'm doing is I'm telling you like these mistakes that I've made and how I kind of learned it wrong. And I'm saving you a lot of time and you're going to learn how to play the guitar quicker and you're going to learn to play the guitar better because you're going to learn it right the first first time around. So my hope is, you know, if somebody's younger and they read this book, that it's the same kind of deal where they can uh, see, you know, some areas where I may have tripped up a little bit, made some mistakes, uh, had some, you know, blind spots in my faith that they can see those things and then just apply it to their life and, and maybe skip out on some of the detours that I had. Since this book has come out, has it made you want to keep writing books or switch genres or go like one and done? That was cool. I'm glad it exists. Back to guitar. I will always play guitar. I mean, I love it. I always do music. I mean, that's that's kind of my uh, first love as far as creativity. But uh, I think, you know, as we were talking earlier, just the, the process of writing a book, you learn to write a book through doing it. And I just think it would be silly to be at the end of the process and go, okay, I'm done. So I, I hope to apply the lessons I've learned in you know this writing process to uh, to go and write you know some more books. And as far as genre wise, I really you know I mentioned that I didn't know a whole lot about the memoir genre before I started doing it myself. But I've really come to really enjoy and embrace just the memoir kind of thing. Really, you like it a lot now? Oh, I really do. Yeah, and to the point that I, like that's that's like the main thing that I read these days. I just finished reading. I don't, do you, you know, Patty Smith, the, um, she was like kind of the punk rocker back in the seventies. Yeah. She's, she's written about two or three memoirs over the last five or six years. And if you've never read them, they're absolutely incredible. Yeah, I haven't read them. She's got one called, uh, I think it's called just kids or we were kids or something like that. And then there's another one called M train that I'm reading right now. And it's really more about like kind of aging and the creative process and different things, but she is amazing. So I've been reading her stuff lately and, of course, you know, being a musician, any kind of sort of rock memoir kind of book, that's like kind of my sweet spot. So I've enjoyed it since I've written one myself. I've really enjoyed reading a lot of others as well. Are you the kind of guy who has like three books going at a time or do you have like one book that you blaze through in three days and then go to the next one? I used to be the the first thing that you said where I would have, it, was, it wasn't three books. It was like seven books yeah, because yeah. You know, I'm all the time, I'm always looking for new books. So whether it be at the bookstore or the library or, you know, word of mouth, if I'm at a show and somebody's like, man, you've got to read, you know, the new T.D. Jakes book or whatever, I would go pick it up and then it goes to the front of the list. Right. And right. I'm reading that, but I still have like six or seven other books that I'm trying to read. This year, I finally just said, okay, I've got to stop the madness. And so I've become more of a read one book at a time kind of person. And it's great because I, I will finish a book in, you know, three days or a week or, you know, however long it takes to read it. And then when I'm done, then I've got that that kind of mental capacity, the energy to be able to focus on something else. So I've I've definitely become more of that kind of reader lately. And it's worked great because I've I've read quite a few more books this year than I normally do. I think that's what I'm going to do in 2018 is because I'm terrible about like, I've got three books on my bedside table and I've got one on the table where I sit in the mornings and read before I get to work. And I keep a book in my car and and I'm afraid that the reason I'm not finishing all of them is because I have all of them. Exactly. Yeah. Now I hope that this book that you have in your car is like on audio or something. I hope you're not. No. Do you know what? (laughs) Reading and driving. (laughs) Do you know, I keep a book in my car so that if I get somewhere early or if I'm 
like waiting in line to get my emissions tested or something. I used to have a car book the whole time before we had phones. And then I went out of it for a season and I would just sit on my phone and like scroll through Twitter or Instagram. And I was like, no, I want a car book again. And so I have Sacred Enneagram, the one by Chris Hewitt's is my car book. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And so I just read a chapter or few, because his is really deep thinking. He uses big words. And so I like that I can only, that I'm not so into it that it's a novel where I'm like, oh, I'm going to stay here for another 20 minutes no matter what. But I learn something and think about it. So yeah, I just keep it in my car. That's a great idea. And, and you just have these little, little bits of time. And you're right, for that kind of book, it's probably good to just have these little bits, you know, that you read at a time so that you can process what you've learned. Now, Annie, tell me the name of the author again. Chris Hugh. Oh, see, you're going to do it. You're going to order it. <laughs> I, 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 it. You know, I said like there's a word of mouth thing. It's going to go to the uh, part of the list. His name is Chris Hewerts, and it's called The Sacred Enneagram. Okay, I'm going to check that it's out. Really yeah, good. I, I did one of those Enneagram tests uh, a couple years ago. I'm actually a nine, which is like the peacemaker. The peacemaker, of course you are. I totally see how that's true. Knowing you and knowing y'all's band in your life, that makes so much sense you're a nine. Did, did you ever see the, the movie Spinal Tap or This yes. is Spinal yeah. Tap? And you know how there's the bass player and he's talking about how there's the one guy in the band that's like the fire and another guy that's the ice. And he's like, well, I'm the guy that's in the middle. I'm like the lukewarm water. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's me. I'm the lukewarm water of third day. <laughs> but you've also always been the like, from my point of view of being friends with y'all and watching, you've also always been the, you're a good constant. Like you're like, Mark is having a great time on stage and he is happy, but he is not like throwing himself off the front of the stage or crying. Like he's just, he is doing, so I, yeah, I can see. Do you, once you learned you were a nine, have you dug into it at all? Do you feel any, like, has it helped you or changed you? Oh, absolutely. It has totally helped. Uh, you know, as you read about the Enneagram, which if nobody out there in your audience has, I've totally encouraged you to, because what's great about it versus, uh, and there's other ways to figure out what personality type you are, and they're, they're all great, but the what's great about the Enneagram is it's built into it is a way for you to progress, you know, for you to figure out like where your personality type is a good thing and then where it can be kind of a hindrance and then how you can sort of move and, and have it work to your advantage. And I know for me as a nine, as you draw like there's a circle and then you draw like these little triangles within the circle. And for me as a nine, if I am operating at my peak level, then I act as, as like a three would, which is three is more like they get stuff done. You know, they're, they're more like almost like taskmaster types. And I know for me, like my tendency is because, you know, I'm the peacemaker. I'm always kind of at rest, always like kind of chilling. If I let myself, that involves me watching college football like all day and all night, which is great, but <laughs> there's other stuff that needs to get done. Uh, so moving Which you to, are such a UGA hater, by the way. We aren't even going to go there, but it's listen, so hard listen, for me. I, hey, now listen, I am not a hater. I'm just, I went to school at Georgia Tech and I'm know, proud of my I school. Know. That's okay. all it is. I hear That's you. All, I, listen, I live in Georgia. I've got a lot of friends who are Georgia fans. You know, a lot of friends who have kids that go to school at Georgia. So it's all good. Well, I saw you even just the other day tweeting about the top five after Georgia lost to Auburn. I was like, he ain't even going to give Georgia a top five. You know, honestly, I would have like Georgia, I'd probably have them about seven. And as and I really was, I was very like on top of this as I was making this list. I was like, I just cannot it, with good conscience after Auburn just beat oh, Georgia. Oh, just the worst. Have just the worst. Georgia be ahead of Auburn in the rankings. That's, that's just me. 
But we'll find out. They're going to put out the playoff rankings tonight. So by the time people hear this on by Thursday, Thursday, they're going to know. We'll have a whole new poll that we can argue about. Oh, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> oh. Okay, so keep going. Sorry, when you're a th- when you're as a nine in your healthiest state, you look like a three. Look like a three who is somebody who is more, you know, has a to-do list and they're getting things done. So for me, and I've even, I found this quote in actually a book uh, called Stoking the Creative Fires. It's a great book. Oh, yeah, I haven't read it. Anybody. And uh, there's a quote and it says, the work is the way out. And so like I highlighted that. I've got it like on a index card that I have like near my workspace. And just for me, you know, my tendency, you know, I want to hang out and be on Facebook or I want to be looking at my Twitter feed or anything but getting work done. But then I'll kind of look up and I'll see that little quote, the work is the way out. For me, uh, that's that's a really key thing is just to focus on just making those little steps, making the progress. Now, I know there's other people who might be wired a little bit differently and they may, may be more of like a workaholic type. So that may not be the answer for them. But for me, just kind of the way that I'm wired, like if I just always, you know, when things are going wrong or things are a little bit off, I can always go back to just that idea of just try to get a little bit of work done, try to make a little bit of progress on my goals today. And I, and I've found for me, like if I can get a, just something done, you know, if I can, you know, work on music for a couple hours in the morning, or if I, you know, can work on a book or whatever project I have going on, I feel like the rest of the day, like I can function in society, you know, and hold my head high, whether I did good work or not, I don't even really think about that. And that may be, you know, common to anybody who does any kind of creative stuff. But, but I know for me, just being wired the way I am, if I don't do that, and if I just, just kind of hang out and just drift, which is a, a tendency for my personality type, then I just have this little bit of guilt that I'm carrying around with me all day. So, And where does a nine go in um, unhealth? Uh, you know, I would have to look at it, Hold Annie. On. I, I can pull up my right I've got my app right in front of me, Mark Lee. Oh, just yeah, hang on that. a second. I feel like it might be a six. It is a six. You're exactly right. A loyalist. So you go to self-doubt and you feel frozen. You seek security in external structures that appear safe. You become suspicious and your anxiety intensifies. Does that feel true? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the anxiety thing would totally be it. You know, I normally am a very, uh, you know, easygoing kind of personality type. But yeah, if I'm under stress, absolutely. I, I just feel anxious and uh, it's just not a good place to to live from. Yeah. I juggling my friends who listen to the podcast hear us every week, but I have two goals with my podcast besides having fun. I want people to fall in love with European soccer and the Enneagram. So you telling them how much you love Enneagram is really helping my goals, buddy. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I seriously, that that's been for me personally, for uh, my relationship with Stephanie. We, we just found, I mean, we just did it as a fun thing. I mean, you can get it, and as involved in it as you want to, but we took, we were driving up to a pumpkin patch a couple of years ago. It was obviously October, right before, I guess, Halloween. We're driving up to pumpkin patch and we uh, just found one of those tests, like an app that you download. And so we took the test, figured out that I'm a nine, figured out that she's a seven. And, you know, sevens, they're just all about, you know, where's the party? They're oh, just that's me, a- man. I'm a seven. Yeah. Stephanie's a seven? That sounds fun. Right? right? You should I mean, have known. Kind of you should have yeah. known. So, but then we we looked and there's there's all kinds of great resources online. We looked, you know, as far as like being in a relationship, a nine and a seven and how compatible we were and the kinds of things that we were going to fight about. I mean, it's really crazy, like how spot on these things are. You almost feel like, you know, Big Brother's been looking at you or something, 
you know, how they're able to really nail these things. The relationship in my life, the man I thought I was going to marry at one point a couple of years ago was an unhealthy nine and I was an unhealthy seven. And when I learned that about both of us, I went, that's why we didn't work. Now I see, you know, I went, oh, we, he would run from confrontation and I would run from pain. And so we were always running away. Right. Wow. Yeah. And so we, and we didn't have the language. We didn't have the language, you know, eight years ago to say what I know to say now of going like, oh, I'm running from pain and you're running from confrontation. We need to face this. For me, that is so much what the Enneagram has done is given me language for my pain, for my choices. It hasn't defined who I am. It's just given me words to explain why I do what I do. That's great. Yeah, it's just a like a framework that you, it's kind of a shorthand that you can look and just that there's so many great books and online resources that you can look at. And and I've done it in, in different areas. Like when I'm trying to figure out like my best work habits and practices, I can go get online and look and see like some different ideas and tips for, you know, what what might work for me that what might, you know, it may not work for other people. Yeah, it's no really kidding. cool. How you kind of have this thing that's tailored towards how you're wired to approach the world. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I think it's a tool. I don't think it's the, I mean, sometimes I think I get accused of thinking that um, the Enneagram is like our salvation. <laughs> it's not. Right, yeah. I recognize it's just a tool, but it has been, I mean, it's been a life-changing tool for me as well. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah, so if, if nobody's, uh, if you're out there and you haven't done it, I would totally encourage you to, if nothing else, just there's several apps that you can just get on your phone and you can take a test and see what type you are. And then even within the app, you can read, you know, about your type and, you know, how you interact with the world and with other people. And if you do nothing more than that, you'll be a better person for having done it. And then you may want to get way up into it like myself and Annie. Yeah. Yep. That's great <laughs> I'm way up into that it. sounds fun. All right. Hey, listen, let's talk for a second about Madeline Langle. Oh, do you love her so yes. much? Yeah, I'm a huge fan. I uh, So when I was in first grade, and this, this story is actually in my book. It's, it was so impactful uh, in my life. But when I was in first grade, my brother and I used to go to this after-school program every day. And on this one day, it, the weather was really bad outside, and my parents must have both had something going on. So we had to stay inside for like three hours. And during that three hours, they played the film strip. Do you remember this might have been? <gasps> yes. No, I got a, I've got you. Yeah. Of wrinkle in time where like every little bit there'll, it'll like ding and somebody turns the little knob and it'll go to the next picture. Well, they did that and it absolutely just blew my mind. It was my favorite thing, you know, and I had always loved the kinds of stories where like a kid will go to another world. So like, you know, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. But what I loved about, a wrinkle in time was that the magical world coexisted with our world and even came into our world, you know, cause this girl comes home from school one day and all of a sudden there are these, you know, these strange creatures that are hanging out in her backyard and things like that. So that was what drew me into the story. And of course, being, you know, seven years old, I had no idea that, that there's this great uh, imagery that represents all of these aspects of our faith in that book. It honestly, I, I was probably, grown up before I realized that it was when I, so I, you know, I read wrinkle in time when I was a kid and then we were in the studio back in the nineties sometime. And the producer of this session that we were working on was talking about how Madeline Lingle had written a book about creativity called walking on water. So I went and picked that up. And again, for just completely different reasons, like the scales fell from my eyes, my mind was completely blown you know, it, there are very few books like this. You know, I love reading books, 
uh, and read them all the time. But just, you know, every now and again, there'll be a book that is like, it just blows your mind. And, and walking on water did the same thing for me as an adult that wrinkle in time had done for me when I was a child. And so I, that was kind of the moment for me that like sort of put everything together. And I was a huge fan of hers and I've read, she's probably got 50 books. So I've, it'd be a stretch to say I've read all of them, but I've read easily half or more of them. And every one of them is great in its own way. I love her memoir books. I love, uh, uh, walking on water obviously is great. And then she did, there's a trilogy of books that she did back in the seventies. And there's one uh, called circle of quiet. I'm reading it right now. That's what I'm reading right now. So good. And, and I, I, what I love about that, and it's encouraging to me because, you know, you write a memoir and the first one you write, you have the, all of the story to tell. You have all of these big, important events that happened in your life. You tell that in your first book. And then when you go back, you're like, okay, what am I going to talk about now? But how she was able to take like a short season, you know, a few months of her life and the things that she's talking about and thinking about as she's just on the road, you know, doing lectures and talking about her latest book. She was able to just talk about the things that she was grappling with, with her faith and her uh, friendship and other people in her lives. And uh, she's just, you know, from a uh, writer's standpoint, I, I love her prose. I mean, it's just uh, it's beautiful to read. So you have that level but then you also have, you know, just this really deep uh, theological thinker that she was and how she was able to merge uh, ideas that came from science at, with ideas that came from her faith and was able to seamlessly weave those together. Uh, she's probably one of the biggest uh, influences for me as a as a creative person by far. Yeah, that's why I've decided people ask me a lot, like, who who's the writer you want to be like, or who do you look up to? And I kept not having an answer until I started reading Madeline Lingle's nonfiction. And then I was like, here it is. This is who I want to be like. So that is, that's actually my 2018 reading goal is to read all of her stuff. Oh, that's, a, yeah, that's, that is a worthy goal because there's so many great things. They, they're between, you know, you have the, the children's kind of fantasy things, which she would bristle at that. You know, she hated the idea that people would separate out children's books and adult books. She felt like she just wrote books and, you know, let people figure out what genre they should fit in yeah. or, or what the audience should be. But, uh, you know, she has the books that are catered more towards kids that are great. And then she has the novels for adults. And then she has uh, the nonfiction things. And I, I actually just started reading again. I read it years ago. Um, is it just called, I think it's just called like, and it was good. And it's, it talks about just the, the book of Genesis, but it's a memoir. So she's talking about, you know, just things that she's going through in life. And then she'll figure out a way to weave together what's going on in her life with uh, stories out of the book of Genesis. I mean, it's just brilliant. It's great yeah. stuff. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. I, I, maybe I'll start with that one. Genesis starting in January feels right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a great one to start from. And there, and she loves trilogies. So there's, there's like, there's that one, there's a stone for a pillow. And I can't remember the name of the other one. Maybe it's, it might be sold into Egypt. So there's like three books that are all based on uh, Genesis. And it's really good stuff. Okay. I'm going to do it. You, you, you hold me to it. I'm going to do it. My promise. All right. I'm, I'm on, I'm going to check in with you about January that's 15th. That's right. That's right. Make sure I've at least started. Yeah, that's right. Um, Hey Mark. So there's one question we always ask at the end of the podcast that we love everyone to answer since it's called, that sounds fun. Tell me what sounds fun to you right now. What sounds fun to me would be to go to a concert. Oh yeah. I've been on the road. I've been, you know, part of a tour and I've been, you know, on stage, like putting on a show. I would love to go 
to a show and just go and just, you know, be blown away. Is there someone you haven't seen before that you're dying to see? You know, I hate to say it, but I, I was the, you know, being from Atlanta, I was like the biggest REM fan in the world. And I never saw them live. And so that would like be my dream thing. If, if one day, if those guys ever get back together and do a show, I'm going to drop everything and go. I'm a huge fan of them. Outside of that, uh, I, I love Wilco. I'm a big fan of those guys. And I saw them play. Actually, Stephanie surprised me for a birthday a few years back. And we uh, flew up to Washington, D.C. They were doing a show up there and saw them. But that was like 10 years ago. So I haven't seen any of their stuff recently. So it'd be awesome to have a chance. Uh, and then Mac and I went and saw Willie Nelson a couple weeks ago. It's something happened. And I don't know if you're this way or if anybody else is this way, but after Tom Petty died, uh-huh. like it just, it really hit me hard. And I know it hit Mac hard as well. And we started going, you know what? We got to make sure to start seeing people in concert, like while they're still around. So mm-hmm. we made sure to go see Willie Nelson. And then another one I've seen him before, but it's been a long time is Bob Dylan. I'm a huge yeah. Bob Dylan fan. So I'd love to, uh, have a chance to see him again, you know, while he's still spry and still touring. I think that'd be fun. We went and saw Willie Nelson. My, we took my dad for Father's Day a couple of years ago at Chastain Park in Atlanta. And my dad yells, I'm not kidding you, Mark. I bet he yells once a song. How about you, Willie? He just yells, <laughs> how about you, Willie? And I was like, that's That sounds about right. Right? <laughs> and it, like one time Lady Annabelle was on TV with Willie Nelson and dad texted me and said, Annie, text Charles and tell him to yell, how about you, Willie? I was like, I am actually not doing that. I am not going to tell my friends to yell, how about you, Willie? But it was a great concert. I was so glad I'd seen him live. Oh, yeah. He puts on an amazing show. I saw him years ago when I was in school at Georgia Tech. Sorry to mention Georgia Tech again in this interview. But while I was in school, Willie Nelson did a, a little show. And it was, you know, Georgia Tech is right by the Coca-Cola headquarters. So Willie was doing like a corporate thing for Coca-Cola. But because it was on campus at Tech, they had opened it up to where kids at the school could buy tickets. And so I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to go see Willie. So it was me and Stephanie went. We were dating at the time. And then there were like 200 other people there. And that was it. He put on like this three hour show and it was unbelievable. It was incredible. It was probably, that probably was the best concert I've ever been to. Yeah. It was, it was really something else. 200 so, people. Wow. Yeah. It was amazing. So got to do that and then got to see him again, you know, recently and uh, just an amazing show. And to see the guy, I mean, the guy's like 82 years old and he's still just bringing it. Is he know? really? It's, he's 82. He's at least 81 because uh-huh. I know he celebrated his 80th birthday like a year or two ago. That so he might be insane. 81, 82, but you know, he's, he's up there and Man, he's still Man, I hope just, I'm still having that much fun in my 80s. I know. Yeah. That sounds fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Serious, I'm gonna have to put my teeth in before we do the show. That's oh. that's okay though. It'll still be fun. It's all right, it will be. Hey, Mark, thank you for doing this today. I'm so glad to get to talk to you. Yeah, this was awesome. I appreciate uh, you having me on the show. Uh, I've been a big fan of of what you do and your writing, and you've inspired me. And I know we've talked a few times, and you've encouraged me in my writing uh, several times. So. I love that you have the show, and I'm a fan, so it's a big honor to be a part of it. I'm telling y'all, Mark Lee and I could talk for a real long time. I enjoyed that so, so much. It was great just to catch up. Now that we don't live in the same town, I don't see him and his wife near as much, but I'm so glad to get to chat. And he's inspired me to be sure to read all of Madeline Lee Engle. And also, I just want to make sure you know that 
Mark is actually being interviewed this week on the 700 Club. So if you want to watch a video of him being interviewed, you can go to CBN.com and look for the 700 Club episode from this week. And he is on it. So you should go watch that. It's going to be a really great interview. And you can pick up Hurt Road at your favorite bookstore, at your favorite online place, wherever you buy books, you can get a copy of Hurt Road. So make sure you grab Mark's book and follow him on Twitter. He's one of my favorite people to follow. He's Mark Lee 3D, the number three and the letter D from third day. So Mark Lee 3D, that's how you'll find him on Twitter. He's super fun to follow. By the way, the music in the background is from our sweet friend, Ellie Holcomb. Make sure you grab her album, Red Sea Road, a perfect gift to give somebody for Christmas this year. Also, if it's your first time listening, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to the family. We're just a group of friends who loves to hang out on Thursdays and next week on Wednesday. Surprise to you. But go ahead and subscribe, and that way you will not miss next week's episode when we drop it a day early because we want you to have something while you're traveling on Thanksgiving. And if you don't mind, review the show and rate it. That really helps it show up for other people who would enjoy being with us as well. Hey, and if you need to find me, I'm embarrassingly easy to find, as I tell you every week. Annie F. Downs, F as in fancy or Atlanta Falcons or fun. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. That's my website, AnnieFDowns.com. Pretty much anywhere you need me, that is how you find me. So Mark wishes he could go to a concert. That's what sounds fun to him. What sounds fun to me today, I want to take a nap. Is that okay with everybody? I think I'm going to go home. What sounds really fun to me is taking a nap. So that is what I'm going to do for just a few minutes because I have work to do today. So it's going to be a short one, but it's going to mean a lot to my heart. So that's what I'm going to do. You go out and do something that sounds fun to you today, and we'll see you next week on Wednesday. Don't forget. Don't forget.